This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. There was a study that was put out um, a couple days ago, actually, uh, that we're getting to today. But it is really, really interesting. A very fascinating study. As I was, as I was reading this, it basically says that when people go to a doctor to get a to get diagnosed with something, sometimes they will go and they will ask for a second opinion. They'll go to a different doctor to get a second opinion. I mean, everyone knows about this. But nine out of 10, according to the study, nine out of 10 people who go to a second doctor to get a second opinion leave with either a new or a refined diagnosis. Now, if you think about that for a second, that sounds a little concerning because what does it say about the first diagnosis. Dr. James Nasons is a healthcare policy researcher at the Mayo Clinic. He helped to lead this research team that came up with this study. He joins us now. Dr. Nasons, thanks for doing this tonight. Uh, You're welcome. Glad to be here. My initial reaction when I heard this and I was reading through this is what I was saying before. Um, Is it a stretch then? Is it crazy to say that a lot of people who took the word of their first doctor might be getting treated improperly then because the diagnosis was not correct? Is that a a fair interpretation of what this says? Well, I I don't want to overemphasize too much the extent of the problem, but that uh, the people that we were looking at were people who were, were referred to Mayo Clinic so they were, and they were also referred by their primary care provider. So that meant either the primary care provider had some level of uncertainty or the patient convinced the provider that they should help facilitate that connection. So it, it's not like every time you go to a primary care provider, they're going to be wrong 20% of the time or they're going to uh, uh, mislead you that much. But there is an extent of error that goes on in uh, medical practice. This may be way too broad a question, but why? I mean, I, and, and I say I, I don't mean to be silly with that question. I mean, I know we're human, right? But I mean, is it are are we talking about things that are just especially when they get to the Mayo Clinic, they're so complicated that it's understandable, or is this doctors being overworked and have to rush through to try and get to the next patient, and therefore they don't have enough time, or what happens? Well, I think it's probably a combination of both of those things. I think that uh, many times you'll go in with some classic symptoms. Um, I had a a cold or a virus or the sore throat, and a test can be done in the office, and those things can be worked out. We're probably talking about, among the study that we did, more complex patients. And uh, there have been studies out that uh, demonstrate that certain diagnoses are harder to um, diagnose than others. Uh, Mayo Clinic has done some study on multiple sclerosis patients, and they've determined that many times that we see those patients, they may not have the correct diagnosis. But there are other times um, um, that it's easier to diagnose or it's more straightforward, and you don't see those same problems. In this study, we... we, um, looked at uh, those patients who were referred by uh, primary care doctors to us, and in this case, um, they were cutting across all sorts of different diagnoses. There are many GI problems, many musculoskeletal or neurology problems, and that same extent of uh, change in diagnosis uh, was seen. 
Well, and and to your point, and I think you just touched on this, um, nobody goes to get a second opinion from a doctor when they have something that is not serious. If you if you go to the doctor because right. you've got a case of the flu, you don't go to see a second doctor to see whether you've got the flu. The, these, I would guess someone who goes to get a second opinion, they are almost always serious or complicated or maybe even frightening things that you're dealing with. Right. And in these instances, um, the patient had to travel, most likely. They had to take time away from work or from their life. They had to make an effort to, to get there. And so it's obviously serious in, in their eyes. And um, uh, patients probably don't need second opinions for common things, uh, for um, um, if you get a treatment or a, a recommended treatment and, and it tends to resolve, um, then you wouldn't need a second opinion. But if it's a, if it's a serious problem, if you're not responding the way you should, or if your provider thinks that they would like more information and would like a second opinion, those are all cases where, where we've seen in our, our study that uh, the second opinion clearly gave value to the patient. Why, though, do so many, why would so many change? And, and why would there be so many different diagnoses? Because if doctors are seeing the same thing, this is, this is kind of the puzzling thing to me. What would the second doctor necessarily see that would be different? By the, time, by the time someone gets to a second doctor, have they described what they're experiencing differently? Are there, why would, the, why would it be different? Well, in, in all of, sometimes, um, here at a place like Mayo Clinic, which is known for for having uh, some of the most recent um, uh, diagnostic tools, and we have specialists, we have more resources we could bring to bear on a more complex patient. So almost all of the patients who had diagnoses changed had further diagnostic tests done. They all saw at least one, and, and in some instances probably multiple specialists in that short period of time to help make those diagnoses. We're also what's considered to be an integrated medical practice where uh, the specialists work with one another and we can make those arrangements uh, to get that further information. So the primary care provider doesn't always have the resources or, or it may take a while to, to get that second opinion or that uh, specialist uh, to be able to give them some more insight. It, it may... And, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. And I was going to say, and in our study, we found that uh, it was about two-thirds of the time that the diagnosis was either further clarified or uh, explored further. So in some instances, the primary care physician realized that, that um, they didn't really understand what was going on, they identified a whole set of uh, symptoms that the patient had, and then they sent them further to us for, for further exploration. And in those cases, we classified that as, as the diagnosis was better defined or refined. And that would be no different, if not necessarily in the medical field, uh, in anything. If you have a problem in your house and the general contractor doesn't really know how to fix it, he can call in a specialist who would know better how to do it. That, is that what we're talking about? Correct. Correct. And in my world, I do that when I get into a field that, that I know about, but I don't know the details about, I'll call in the specialist in that area to, to help me out. Which makes an awful lot of sense. Of course it does. Right. 
Right. That said now, if yeah. if one in five, it turns out, according to this study, as I understand your study, if one in five have a different diagnosis when they finally get looked at, should would that be concerning then to me as a patient that if I go to my doctor, let's say, I, I, let me pick something out of the blue here. Let's say... Um, I don't know. Let's say the doctor diagnoses me with Crohn's disease. I, I mean, I don't know. Um, and then he builds a plan for me and puts me on medication or does whatever I'm supposed to be doing to deal with Crohn's disease. If one out of five turn out to not be correct, is that one potentially being treated improperly and getting the wrong treatment for what they should be getting? Is that Can it extend that far along? Yes. Um, there, are, there are clearly patients who have been referred to us who are coming with an expectation that they're going to have a transplant, that um, our physicians and our team will work them up and they'll uh, determine that the condition they have is, is the transplant is not the option that they should take, that there are other ways to treat that that are less invasive and less uh, life-changing. So should I always then, if I have something serious, is the, is the lesson from this that I should always seek a second opinion? Well, I think in in situations where it's complex um, or where it's going to very seriously affect your life, um, then if if um, you have time to see if the uh, treatment you're being given is is able to work and uh, you're getting better, then you're probably okay without a second opinion. But if you're not reaching those, uh, if your condition isn't responding or um, it's going to be a, a, a serious life-changing treatment, then it's probably worthwhile to, to get further information on it. Okay, now here, here's the part that as I was thinking about this today, and I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting study, and I'm glad you did it because it really is, uh, is very illuminating. But here's the interesting part. Almost every time you hear of someone going to get a second opinion, and I don't know why this is, but we seem to lend way more credibility to the second opinion. We get, for some reason, I don't know, psychologically, if a second doctor tells us something, we believe that one. What if the first doctor was actually right and the second doctor was wrong? Yeah, and that was one of the, the uh, as we went through the peer review process to get this uh, addressed and even talking to some colleagues here, that uh, we don't know absolutely that the first opinion wasn't correct and the second opinion was. We did not follow these patients and study them, which is, which is what I think the ideal study would have done, is that you actually have the time to, to see what's happened and, and make that determination. Um, we believe that because we had a team of people looking at most of these patients and we were able to do further uh, studies and exams and uh, further testing on the patients that we're a little more confident in what we came up with and what the first situation was. But that's that that's the Mayo but, Clinic, and certainly, I mean, you're, as you say, you, you are a cutting-edge, leading medical facility. Not everybody is going to get there, but I go to my doctor here who gives me some sort of diagnosis, and I think, oh, that's really frightening. I don't really want to believe that I have that. And we go to a second person then, and he gives me something else for whatever reason. I don't know. Maybe you disagree. Maybe you think it's not the case. But it seems to me we always go, oh, the second opinion was not, so I'll buy the second opinion. It, 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 it seems to me it's odd. The first one could have been just as right, could it not? 
Well, it, the first one could have been just as right. Um, and again, if if your condition isn't responding as you'd expect, based on what sure. they told you and what that second second treatment was, then it might have been the first person was correct, or maybe they're both wrong and <laughs> keep looking. Can tell it was another one, but. Um, so I think it's it's important to uh, get information about those providers, um, um, even review information or uh, how uh, have there been issues or problems in the past. Is this a condition that's that's well understood and, and has uh, clinical guidelines around the diagnosis treatment of it, or is this one of those conditions that is really difficult to determine and and um, uh, further assessment is necessary. Dr. James Nasons from uh, Healthcare Policy Researcher at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, sincerely appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for uh, inviting me. That, to me, of this whole thing, and it's, it's a fascinating study. You can read it online. There's lots of different stories about this online. Uh, his last name, if you're looking to read more about this, if you're someone, perhaps, who's wondering about whether a diagnosis that you or a family member or a friend has had is accurate. His last name is spelled N-A-E-S-S-E-N-S, Dr. James Nasons. That's the part that always I find interesting with these, is that if I go to Dr. John and Dr. John says that I have liver failure, again, picking something out of the blue, and I don't like that diagnosis because it sounds scary or it sounds daunting or it sounds terrifying or it sounds permanent or whatever else. And I go to a second doctor for whatever reason, when you get your second opinion, we always seem to buy the second opinion. The second doctor, for whatever reason, in our mind, always seems to be the right one. Now, if the second doctor says it's liver problems, you go, oh, okay, I've got liver problems. But if the second doctor says, oh, no, 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 you just have a, a, a mild case of mono, for whatever reason, we believe that guy and we don't believe the first one, but the first one could have been every bit as right. Anyway, it's just a, it's an interesting thing that we're finding that so many diagnoses are being overturned or changed as you go to see a second doctor. As I say, the tricky part though is then determining if you've got two different diagnoses now, which one was correct? How do you know which one was correct? Well, then do you get a third opinion? Do you keep going until you get a bulk of opinions and you can then determine which one is has the most heft to it? I mean, I don't, I don't know how you do it. But if I had something that was terribly scary, if I had a, a diagnosis that was terribly frightening, that was going to be affecting my life, certainly I would in all likelihood go to get a second opinion just to be sure, especially if it involves something like a an amputation or a removal of an organ or some sort of serious surgery. Of course you would get a second opinion, but then how do you decide which of the two opinions, if there's only two, was actually the right one. Maybe you, maybe the second guy says you have to, or the second woman, whoever, says you have to get something cut out. And they're wrong. I, I, I generally, as a rule, believe that doctors know what they're talking about. I don't know if I should. I believe I should. This study says, yes, you should, but dot, dot, dot. 
Go read it. It's, uh, again, uh, the last name, N-A-E-S-S-E-N-S. Or you can just type in Second Opinion Mayo Clinic. You'll find the story. It's a fascinating, fascinating story if you want to read more about it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. It was announced that Canada, the United States, and Mexico are teaming up to make a bid for the 2026 World Cup of Soccer. Now, as I said at the very top of the show tonight, this is not merely bidding on a sports event. The World Cup of Soccer is the sports event. This is the, not even sports event, this is the biggest event period on the planet every four years. There is nothing else that comes anywhere close in terms of scope. Soccer is the world's game. The entire world is interested in this. The viewership is off the charts. The interest is over the moon. This is putting in a bid to host, part of anyway, part of the biggest event on the planet. Question is, would it work? John McGrain is a member of the Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame at Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame. He played for Canada in the Olympics. He's played professional soccer. He's done everything. Uh, He joins us now. John, how are you this evening? Nice to talk to you again. How are you keeping? Well, I'm doing okay. Before we get to this, though, I must ask, uh, everyone can tell from your accent that uh, you came from somewhere far, far away once upon a time where soccer really, really matters. Um, how did they take it back there when Scotland tied Canada 1-1 in their last uh, friendly? That, that had to be uh, throw yourself off a bridge night for some people. Well, the interesting part is, is that, uh, you know, being a bit conflicted uh, about coming from both countries, like anybody who came, he was born in Italy and lived in Canada, they'd probably have the same problem. But it was good to see that, uh, that Canada put up a really good fight and came through with a couple of good chances. But it was terribly disappointing to, to see the caliber of the game in Scotland right now where where that would happen. But then four days later, they had a great result against uh, Slovenia in the World Cup qualifying. So who knows if they took the game too lightly. But uh, great result for Canada. Sure. Well, listen, let, we're going to get to that in a minute. But first, the idea of a three-pronged World Cup bid. I, I recall that we had the Japan... South Korea World Cup a few years ago. So we've had countries share this before. I don't think there's ever been a three-country bid for this. Would this work? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, the way that it's been set up, because it's going to be 48 teams, is that uh, you're going to have what what they call like a a pre-World Cup where 16 teams will play against each other. Uh, And then I guess the winners of that will qualify for the actual World Cup itself. So there's going to be tons of games available. My understanding is is that Canada will have 10 games, uh, which may mean something to the effect that they may have two groups uh, of the multiple groups available, and that uh, Southern Ontario will be the basis for one of those groups. So if the bid goes through, which I am almost positive that it will, it's going to be great for Canadian soccer and great for the fans, and I think tremendously uh, beneficial to the development of our uh, of our national team. Well, certainly the the one thing it would do, by the sounds of it, unlike what happened for say in Brazil, it would keep the cost down to be part of a host of one of these because Brazil just blew its brains out as far as the amount of money it spent, and now stadiums are sitting vacant in the middle of the jungle. Um, this would allow Canada to be part of a World Cup without having to go completely crazy. Yeah, no, you're right about that, and I think. Uh, the, the, the economics of the game today are such that to build stadiums just to host a number of games and then 
hand it over to, uh, I mean, well, look, look what happened in China during the Olympics. Uh, I mean, the big O in Montreal for the Olympic Games in 76 cost a billion dollars. And, I mean, up until a couple of years ago, they were still paying for it. So I think economically it means that if you've got two venues or possibly three venues, you're only talking about expanding uh, existing stadiums to, to get to the 50, 60,000 seat uh, variety. Uh, so the cost in actually hosting a World Cup is being shared actually more by the United States because they're going to have most of the games. Would the okay? So if if you're correct, and it, certainly what you say makes a lot of sense that on that a, a Canada would host a group or two, would it by definition the way the World Cups works? Wouldn't FIFA ensure that one of the teams in that group was Canada, or would that be seen as an unfair advantage, and would they be put somewhere else to not give them home field advantage? Well, each World Cup that is played, the home team has a home field home home field advantage. In Russia next year, they're going to be playing in front of Russians. So uh, what they'll probably do, and again, this is not written in stone, but it makes perfect sense from an economic standpoint, that uh, you would have Canada playing in the group in Canada, United States playing in the U.S., and Mexico playing in Mexico. And then what else? I mean, does FIFA... Now, the way they do it is completely, of course, by draw. Generally, though, and and we don't have the example of this, I guess, too much. Would you to see where where they would place teams? But certainly, we have countries that have more heavily immigrated into this country than other countries have. For example, if you were to put Team Italy in the pool in Canada, you would have massive, especially in Southern Ontario, you would have massive interest in this as opposed to some others. It, it, other than the home teams, do you get the sense that FIFA is? would look at something like this and try to make it so that you would have the biggest possible audiences, or would they simply say, we'll put the home teams then in the home country and the rest will fall where it may? I think that's probably where, the, where they'll end up going because, I mean, the World Cup, as you go, are aware. I mean, you're talking about probably one and a half to two billion people are going to be watching this one because of the size of the number of teams involved. So, I mean, you could have Sri Lanka playing in Canada and you'll have 60,000 people there. It's a, it's a once-in-a-lifetime event to go to a World Cup game. Uh, I believe that it won't be as easy as just calling up and trying to buy a ticket. I think there'll be lotteries involved. Uh, it'll be the hottest ticket in the history of Canadian sports. Uh, you know, the World Cup, Canada hosting the World Cup. It, it, will be, it doesn't matter who you're going to put where. It'll be sold out, including in the United States and definitely in Mexico. So it doesn't really matter, other than your home team, because again, you're going to have, well, is that a fair guess that if you have a three-host country World Cup that all three would get to put their team in to have an automatic entry? Is that a expectation? I would assume that, because I think part of the, uh, part of the uh, requirements in an expanded 48 teams is that they've expanded uh, the different regions and how many teams that they can qualify is now increased. I think uh, CONCACAF has increased by two. Uh, I think Europe's increased by four. I mean, so there's increases all across the place. Because it's being held in the CONCACAF region, that six teams who would usually qualify would mean that only three would qualify, uh, would have to qualify because the three host teams will be qualified. Uh, I can't imagine having a World Cup in Canada without the host team, uh, you know, you know, being a part of, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that, uh, that draw. So, uh, 
I just, uh, it, it, it won't make sense not to have the home teams involved. But the, the real answer to that is I don't have an answer. Well, and, and you touched on it a moment ago with the when I was sort of asking you about Canada versus Scotland and Canada's development. Would being, knowing that you're going to be hosting a World Cup a decade from now, roughly, would that accelerate the development of the Canadian national team? Because it seems like we've always been waiting for some kind of impetus to really make this happen. Would that be the thing? Would that be the thing that would launch Canada's soccer program, men's program, into great improvement? Not initially. Uh, what's going to bring us to uh, to that level will uh, happen on May 6th, which will be a, mis- a massive uh, press conference that will take place that will probably answer all those questions as far as professional soccer in Canada is concerned. That would be the soccer league that Steve Milton has written a lot about in The Spectator, the professional league in this country, including in Hamilton. No comment. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, all I'll say is May 6th is when they're going to have the announcement, and when it happens, it will be great news. Uh, but, but to answer your question, uh, in order to develop Canadian players, we must have our own domestic league. They're not, all, they're not being developed in the three Canadian MLS teams because Canadians don't play. Uh, so there has to be a, uh, uh, an environment for them to actually uh, to play against the best players in the world, uh, to play with the best players in the world. And I think that can only happen when you have your own domestic league. And in South Korea and Japan, uh, the Korean League uh, is, is now flourishing. The J League in, in Japan has produced some great players that are now playing in Europe. Uh, so I, I do believe that having a professional league in the country that you're going to host the World Cup, you just don't want to host it. You want to be competitive. Uh, otherwise, you know, what's the point? So I, I can see an acceleration in the development of the game because of the World Cup, but can't exist without the implementation of a professional league. And, and you know what? You make a good case for it. Uh, the reason I asked the other way is because when Canada was going to host the Olympics in 2010, suddenly we had mogul skiers and we had skeleton racers and we had other people in other sports that there's not a professional league but when they knew the olympics were coming and then when canada started that own the podium program Mm -hmm. it all worked together when you have a a carrot on the end of the stick that you know that on that particular day you know what i can actually grab that carrot it does seem to be very motivating no matter what it is you're doing it does seem to accelerate the development of that sport well one thing is for sure uh you know, the, the fact that they're announcing uh, in the next couple of years who's going to win that bid, and I'd be absolutely shocked if it's not CONCACAF because they, I think they hold something like 24 or 26 votes on, on, the, FIFA, uh, on the FIFA board. Uh, but let's assume that that's the case. Uh, what, what will happen is, is that there will be a, an increase in the interest in the national program leading towards the World Cup and then there will be a springboard depending on how well the Canadian team does vis-a-vis some other teams in our own backyard. Uh, so I think that the World Cup itself, before, during, and after, will accelerate exponentially uh, the interest and the development of Canadian players like at no time in our history. Could we? Does that give, does that give us enough time to be good? Uh, I think we don't have a choice. I think we're going to have to spend millions and millions of dollars 
to do whatever is necessary to make sure that we are competitive. Because really, that's what it comes down to. And that's why the uh, the succession of the Canadian Premier League is so very, very important to that development is because with a professional team and a professional league, you can now go on tours around the world and develop Canadian players. Because the only way that you're ever going to get better, as has happened in my career and most, most other Canadian players here in the old NESL, is that we played with the George Best and Johan Cruyff and played against Pelé and Beckenbauer. We got better because we made mistakes and learned from them, and that's what we need to have in our backyard. And and I think once this all comes together and has become public, that the the I think the folks in Hamilton will be absolutely over the moon because don't forget, there's a lot of exhibition games that's going to take place a year or two years before the World Cup, and I would be absolutely shocked. And I'm not giving anything away, but I'd be absolutely shocked if Hamilton is not a part of hosting some of the the top-class exhibition games with some of the top teams in the world. Well, when you talk about how quickly we could get this done, I guess we got to find out how many Canadian doctors would be able to clone Pele before the uh, 2026 World Cup. If we could have 11 of him running around, we might be very well off. Hey, listen, I played against Pele. I was glad there was only one of them. <laughs> That's exactly my point. Hey, just before, just before we're done here... Um, if we think back, uh, what was it? Two was it two years? Two thousand fifteen, the Women's World Cup that was held in Canada. We all remember the uproar that preceded and followed that because the women were complaining that the fields weren't good enough. They were turf. They weren't grass. What would happen if it was a men's World Cup? Would we see fields being switched over to grass for that? Absolutely. Well, you're talking about you're talking about a billion dollar in uh, revenue stream or billions of dollars of revenue stream. Uh, the reason why Canada got the Women's World Cup is because nobody else paid for it, because there's no money that can be made from it, or very little money that can be made from it. The Men's World Cup will always be a gold standard when it comes to events, bigger than the Olympics. So you will see every single stadium that's going to play in the World Cup as a host will have grass, and the grass will be shipped in, just like it was for a lot of the games on exhibition games that you've seen on TV over the last few years in, in the United States and Canada. It will be a fully grass field uh, uh, playing surface, and uh, as it should be. At Tim Hortons Field? Absolutely. Every field that's going to, uh, every field that's going to host exhibition games, uh, the Confederation Cup, which usually comes the year before the World Cup, which is a test event, which is usually 8 to 12 teams, uh, and then you've got the World Cup itself. Every single game and every single playing sur- uh, practice surface will be grass. John McGrain, always appreciate your insights. Thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure, and again, nice to talk to you again. Thanks. We will look forward to that press conference beginning in May. Thanks for doing this. Take care. Um, now, when John says that he would be shocked if Canada and the U.S. and Mexico do not win the World Cup, here's why. I didn't want to go into it while he was on because this would just tie it up, but... Asia and Europe cannot bid. FIFA rules preclude them from putting forward another bid country for the 2026 World Cup because they've hosted the they will have hosted the past two World Cups. So they are eliminated that you can't double up. And South Africa hosted in 2010. Remember the Vuvuzelas? The 
going all the time, drove you nuts. And Brazil hosted in 2014. So Africa and South America would be highly unlikely that they would go back to those continents so quickly again. Meaning that unless Australia, which we've heard nothing about as far as any kind of bid, whether Australia or if Antarctica decides to go in and we've heard nothing, we've heard no hint of an Antarctic bid for the World Cup, that would be interesting. Um, it, that would leave North America, which is Canada, US, and Mexico. That is why everybody, pretty much everybody, is saying this thing, as long as they can find the money, as long as they can put the organizing together, as long as it looks reasonably proper, this bid will win. And they're asking, and the, the bid committee, the group that has come together for this, is asking that it be determined by... 2018, so they have enough time to get everything sorted out. So by 2018, a year from now, we should know that we are hosting the World Cup of Soccer. And maybe, maybe there'll be a game here in Hamilton. It may be East Erie and Jaya versus West Slobodanistein, but we may be hosting a game here. We will find out. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Earlier today, I'm sitting at my desk, uh, minding my own business, moderately busy. I try not to get, you know, too rev the engine too high early in the day until the caffeine has kicked in. But anyway, I see this Twitter come across, tweet come across that says that Jeffrey Orridge, the commissioner of the Canadian Football League, who's only been the commissioner for two years, he's pretty much still brand new. He's still got a new car smell on him is gone. He's done. He's out. He is no longer, as of June, going to be the commissioner of the CFL. The CFL, well, he has either moved on to bigger and better things and brighter, greener pastures, or the CFL has said, uh, see you later, Jeffrey. Uh, You're no longer needed here. But he's gone. Well, here to try and explain this, because this is a big deal, because this is a league that needs stability, and it's not finding it right now. Uh, Here to talk about it, Rick Zamperin. Of 900 CHML, you may have heard of him. You may have heard his voice once or twice. He's only on the air 18 hours a day. Rick, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, Scott. How are you? I am well. So, right off the bat, are you surprised by this? Well, first, I I have to take my shot, so to speak, and say this is, you know, being the CFL, this is the proverbial two and out. (laughs) Yeah, literally. Two years for Jeffrey Orridge. And he had a three-year contract, so it's perfect. It's a perfect analogy. He's punting on the third. I am, I am very surprised, um, si- simply by you know the <clears throat> you know the uh, not necessarily the bravado, but the vision that Jeffrey Orridge had when he took the job. You know, spoke of his love for the game, uh, growing up and watching it with his father, and and falling in love with you know the Canadian rules and, and the whole you know mystique and Canadiana behind it. And I think a lot of fans uh, were kind of, you know, eating that up to say, yeah, you know, we're going to get back to our roots. Uh, we're, we're going to, you know, expand on what we have already. Uh, you know, Ottawa is coming into the fold, you know, at the time. And, and uh, you know, we're bigger and better things are on the horizon. Uh, so two years later, um, you know, the, the demise came really rather quickly and, and much more quickly than I expected. Do you believe in what I touched on a moment ago? Do you believe that Jeffrey Orridge decided that he was just tired of this as he sort of, as the, the press release suggested and decided to move on on his own? Or do you think he was given the firm, but gentle shove out the door by the owners? 
I would go with the latter as opposed to the former. I think, you know, the owners have looked at the game. Um, you know, they, they looked at you know, TV ratings, revenue, um, things that have and have not happened. And we'll get into the Toronto situation, I'm sure, because that's the, you know, the big, the biggest of the elephants in the room. Uh, you know, they, and, and some of the, the missteps and, and things that he did or said that didn't really, uh, you know, jive with, uh, CFL fans. Number one being the new logo, which uh, you ask any CFL fan, they they think it's horrendous. So they most think it's just a horrendous logo. Uh, you know the rebranding of this league, and they came out with you know basically something that a, a kid in grade four would have came up with. Uh, the other one being last year, uh, just before the Great Cup, in his State of the League address, uh, Commissioner Orridge, you know, refusing to correlate concussions with playing football. Uh, which really raised a lot of eyebrows, especially what's happened in the NFL and with CTE and all the research behind that. Uh, I think that may have been, uh, if not the final nail, one of the final nails in his proverbial coffin. I, I think it's a fair comparison with what's going on, but I mean, really, Jeffrey Orridge, when he was up there giving that press conference, was essentially the Sean Spicer of commissioners. Like it was just, <laughs> it was, it was so dense and so. Oh, how do you not see what you're saying is goofy? And and everybody who was sitting there that day listening was looking at him like, "Are you kidding? Are you who do you who are you trying to fool?" And and I think rather than looking what you want, I think what most people want is for the commissioner to be the smartest guy in the room when he's sitting with a bunch of media people. He looked <laughs> like he looked like the dumbest guy in the room that day. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure diplomacy was his strong point. I mean, he could have easily skirted all that controversy and, and bad publicity by saying, uh, you know, listen, there's there's research that's out there. Our number one priority is, is the health of our players, uh, be it, uh, you know, entry-level guys to, to 10- and 15-year veterans. We want to take care of the guys that put fans in the seats and, and left it at that. But, I mean, he went a complete 180, which is just mind-boggling even, even now to think back on how that went so wrong and why he, uh, and I think still believes, uh, you know, in his comments. But he came in, he was a TV guy partially, he'd worked for CBC, but he was also pitched as a marketing guy. And, and when you talk about people who are a marketing person, that would, by definition, mean that they are public relations, that they can sell something, that they can explain themselves and position things properly. I never got the sense that he was great at that. No, and, you know, I, I expected a lot more on that front. I mean, can you, can you think of, over the last two years, something that the CFL did, marketing-wise, that really grabbed your attention? I mean, the two for me... Uh, over the last uh, probably 10, maybe even 15 years, uh, it, number one is, you know, this is our game. Yep. Uh, you know, obviously, that, that really hits home. You know, this is, uh, this is part of our, our fabric. Uh, we have different rules. Uh, you know, this is, this is who we are as a league. The other one, and I thought was probably one of the more creative. I know where you're going with this. Jeff will, Giles, right? Yeah, our, our balls are bigger. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, which is basically <laughs> making, not making fun, but just uh, correlating the fact that CFL footballs are uh, dynamically uh, bigger than uh, an NFL football. And that's just, that's just a fact. So, you know, play on that and have fun with it and to, you know, uh, just uh, point to the differences uh, in each game in a creative and kind of funny aspect, I thought was brilliant. But in the Orridge era, I can't, uh, apart from the crappy logo, they didn't do anything. No, and that's probably, even if you have a bad marketing plan, 
I suppose at least then you can talk about the bad marketing plan as opposed to what was the marketing plan. Right. And that's, that is, you're absolutely right. If the, if apathy is worse than passion one way or the other, even if you hate something, at least you're thinking about it. At least you're talking about it. At least you have an opinion on it. I don't think there was anything to have an opinion on, as you say, except for the logo. Um, and you touched on a second ago, Rick, the fact that the, when I asked you about whether he was pushed or whether he stepped away, um, TV ratings are down. Mm-hmm. Uh, ticket sales are down. I don't know whether it's fair to say, but I could argue that you could make a case that interest is down. Um, it, it's not like... And again, two years is a very short time. I don't want to dump all the problems of the league onto Jeffrey Orge. There were things that were way beyond his control. But certainly, when you look at his timing and uh, time here, and you look at what's been going on, his fault or not, he is going to be tied to those challenges. Sure, and I almost got the sense that you know, with Tim Hortons Field, and you know, the Argos moving to BMO Field. And, you know, Investors Group Field in Winnipeg and and the new stadium, the new Mosaic Stadium in Saskatchewan, uh, you know, there was a lot of resting, uh, you know, this league resting on its laurels saying, you know what, we we have all these new venues, you know, things are looking up, things are being bright. We have a new TV deal, we have a new CBA, uh, you know, we have uh, dynamic players in this league, uh, you know, things are on the up and up, which, you know, on the surface, I think that's partially true. But when you look at TV ratings, when you look at, um, you know, league-wide uh, people in the seats, uh, attendance figures, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, the, the dots aren't connecting, and especially when you look at the Toronto situation. I think the next guy uh, or girl, uh, the next commissioner of the CFL has to take a hard and fast look at Toronto to say, how do we fix this? Is it fixable? Well, let's go to Toronto because that really is right now the millstone around this league's neck. Um what about Toronto? Could could Jeffrey Orridge have done something that he didn't do, in your opinion, that would have made the Toronto situation less horrible? Or was that completely out of his control? Well, I think obviously he has a say in, in you know how uh, things should be done from a league-wide standpoint. From a team-to-team standpoint, he can obviously offer his two cents, and perhaps he did from time to time with every CFL team. But with the Toronto situation, I don't think that is a uh, you know a scenario that's curable in the next couple of years or, or was curable over the past two years. I think moving to the new, you know, BMO field, getting it back outdoors, getting more of a, uh, you know, football vibe as opposed to being in the cavernous uh, dome in Toronto, I think is, is, is a good step. But apart from just saying, hey, we're in a new stadium, a lot more had to be done and a lot, and a lot wasn't. I mean, other than, hey, we have a new venue and you know, we're doing tailgating. I mean, what else was done from an Argos perspective? I think they really missed an opportunity to really explode and expose this franchise to say, hey, you know, this is the new Argos. Whether, you know, you can throw in a new logo, you can throw in new uniforms, whatever the case is, but they had to do something more substantial than say, we have a new home. And but is that the league? Is that the league's job? Because, or, or is that the Argos' job? And may, maybe the two are the same thing. I don't know. But is, is it fair to put that on Orange, or is that to be worn by the Argos? Well, I think it's more, yeah, it's more worn by the Argos, but I think the league has to, and maybe they tried to put a little more attention on how do we boost sagging attendance, sagging interest in Toronto. We all know that there's a, a slew of other things to do in TO. It's almost the the West Coast kind of atmosphere, or even the Miami kind of atmosphere, that there's so many other things to do. You know, we're not going to go to a Dolphins game. You know, we'll go to a Heat game another time. You know, the, the weather outside is so beautiful, let's go to the beach. You know, that West Coast mentality of, you know, let's go surfing or go to the beach instead of, you know, the Dodgers game or whatever. 
the fact of the matter is franchises still have to do their darndest to get people in the seats. And sometimes you have to think out of the box. And I'm not sure the league, and especially the Argos, uh, went that route. Where do you see the CFL right now? On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the best, where is this league as far as being positioned as a strong, healthy, dynamic, fan-friendly, get-lots-of-attention league? Well, you have to compare to other leagues, right? You can't just say, you know, this is a one-off and, you know, where do they stand in, in terms of entertainment? So you got to throw the NHL and the NBA and Major League Baseball automatically into the mix. Uh, the NFL, too, obviously being the same sport. And, you know, the, the CFL, by and large, is below all of those leagues. And there's a number of factors involved. Number one, the finances. You know, one CFL team is worth upwards of $5 million if, if teams are going up against the cap. You know, Tom Brady makes that basically in a couple of weekends. Uh, so, you know, the apples and oranges aren't really comparable in terms of the finances, and that's what really sets all these other leagues apart, is they have billionaires um, running these franchises, and, and there's, you know, more than nine, obviously, in the NFL and the other leagues. They have, uh, you know, gargantuan uh, mega-billion-dollar marketing initiatives behind them. You know, take the NFL for an example. They have a whole network just associated, just dedicated to its league. NHL is the same. MLB is the same. NBA is the same. So, you know, the CFL is a few steps behind those. So on a, on a scale of 1 to 10, you know, maybe I give them a 5. Hmm. They definitely relate to the fans. I think it's a fan-friendly atmosphere at each and every stadium. I've, I've been to all the venues. I can attest to that. Uh, I think the fans who are CFL fans really love the game uh, they know it's history. They, you know, it's part of their fabric. It's part of who they are. I think, you know, ticket prices by and large are, uh, you know, uh, adequate from, from coast to coast. I think, you know, you're not seeing a lot of empty seats because people can't afford to go to the games. Uh, and I just think that, uh, you know, in each and every venue that has been improved, I think has, has gone towards making it a more uh, accessible, uh, better viewing kind of experience for the fans. So I think the CFL gets a lot of check marks, but uh, they are by far and away uh, a few steps away from all the other major pro sports in North America. It's amazing when you say they're worth roughly five million bucks. I was uh, Clayton Kershaw, the great. You were talking about LA, the great pitcher for the Dodgers. <laughs> He'll make that in five starts. He will yeah. be. He would be able in five starts be able to buy a CFL team. That, I mean, yeah, it's, he, it, he, it puts some sort of context, and he's a player. He's not even an yeah. owner. It puts a, some context into just really how uniquely, we love it here, but how uniquely small this league is, really, in the grand scheme of professional sports leagues. He, he can bankroll more than half of the CFL payroll. How about that? Well, in, yeah. in one season. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. He, I mean, what, what is the salary cap this year? $5 million, something like that? Five, yeah, five, just over $5 million. So he could pay two-thirds of the team's entire bankroll. Yeah. He could pay for the salaries of two-thirds of all the players in the league, and that's one guy. That and, it's, in perspective, doesn't it? It really does. No, it, it, and I, that's, that, to me, Rick, is where if there was a failing in Jeffrey Orridge, my sense with Jeffrey Orridge as commissioner was – that there were some things that he did very well. I thought this this thing they had a few weeks ago in Saskatchewan and Regina with the CFL, the Combine Week and everything, I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was a wonderful thing they did, and they pulled it off, and it was great. But there were a lot of times I got the sense that Jeffrey Orridge saw this not as a league of the people, 
but as something that he aspired to be too big. And I mean, I look, it's great to have big dreams and everything else. I just never got the sense that personally that he was as in touch with how grassroots, in a sense, this league really is. Yeah. You know what? In saying that, I thought Mark Cohan, a couple of commissioners ago now, yep. uh, did a fantastic job of doing that to kind of bringing, you know, uh, starting the Grey Cup train with yeah. via rail and bringing it coast to coast and just bringing more fans, you know, exposing the game to more fans, I think was his number one priority. And, and that's, you can never go wrong doing that because, you know, showcasing the game to a wider audience is basically what you want to do as as a marketing guy or a commissioner or any anyone in charge of a league. All right, so we've got about two minutes left here. So uh, there are already some names being bandied around, and you, before I get to them, you actually threw something out there that um, I hadn't really thought about, but boy, you, you may be onto something here. Um, this is a league that has prided itself, and rightly so, on being the league that was the first to open the door to black quarterbacks, and now it was the first to have an African-American, a black commissioner, a minority commissioner. You said he or she mm-hmm. Wouldn't, when you said that, you know what, a light went on in my head and I thought it would not shock me if they actually hired a woman to be the commissioner of this league, just because the CFL has done those things over the years, just because that would not make me fall out of my chair. Well, if you, (laughs) you want to get people's attention, I think that would do it. Uh, I think that obviously the person is going to be capable. The person has to have some kind of marketing uh, and obviously business background. They got to know how to run a business. Yeah, so it can't. It can't be a. It can't just be a, a like a figurehead or a. No, let's no. put you out there just to have a woman doing this. But yeah, there's uh, loads of women out there who would be capable. Exactly, we're not going to have the queen of the CFL. I mean, this person has to work. Work. <laughs> no, to sure. Their paycheck, right? Of course, but there there are people out there who could do that. I, that would not shock me at all. And I had not even considered it until you said or she. Yeah. And, and I don't have a name. No, no, but that's but I it, it it would be it would make a lot of sense with this league. That that would not be the thing that would shock me. But in the with in the absence of a name of a woman, and that could happen. Let's go through just a few of the other names that have popped up here already today in the early moments uh, as a successor. One of them, and I don't get this one at all. Yeah. One of them that's getting a ton of mileage already is Glenn Johnson, the head of officiating. And the reason I don't get this one is has not over the past couple of years officiating been seen by many people around the league as a bit of a mess? Yeah. Uh, although some people might say, you know, putting Glenn Johnson in a different uh, job <laughs> might, might improve that. <laughs> yeah, get uh, yeah, that's right. Give him a better, move him up so he's out of the way. Um, <laughs> the, two, the two names I thought of, number one, I, I thought of this individual before, uh, would be Ticats president Scott Mitchell. Obviously, you know, he's got some pedigree with it, with his dad being at the post. Uh, being, a, uh, you know, a governor at the league level, I think he'd do a, a phenomenal job in terms of, you know, bringing this league to the next level. I'm not sure he wants to move from his current post. And, and you know, there's there's nothing behind, you know, my comment in saying that, but I think he'd, he'd do a fine job. Oh, well, let me, oh, before you go to the other yeah. one, though, let me ask you about Scott Mitchell, because we do know that Scott Mitchell has been very successful with the Ticats, but he is also, as we've seen in Hamilton, he has been a polarizing figure. Do you want someone in that post who is not soft and warm and cuddly, or do you want someone that people are going to really, everybody is going to say, I love that guy. Uh, How important the, is that? The name Gary Bettman comes to mind. That's true. No, that's <laughs> but, true. You know, at the end of the day, you know, the commissioner works for the owners, uh, works for the league, and 
And that's no different from, from Gary or Adam Silver in the NBA or Roger Goodell in the NFL. You know, they, they work for the owner. So I think, obviously, he would have his opinions, and he has his opinions about how to grow the game and move the game forward. And I think that it's okay to have a polarizing figure, whether it's, you know, someone from Hamilton or Calgary or Montreal or whatever. If, if their sole focus and, and they're successful at this is to move the game ahead, uh, I could care less how, how the person approaches, you know, their job as long as they're getting results. Person number two, you were going to say. Person number two, I think, is an exact opposite of Scott Mitchell in terms of personality, and that would be Glenn Grunwald. Who wow. Has, yeah, who's done some phenomenal stuff with McMaster and, and the athletics program there, has a tremendous amount of experience in terms of uh, running at office, whether it's with the Raptors or the Toronto Board of Trade or you know, being in the upper echelon of the player personnel department to the New York Knicks. I think that would be a, a fantastic choice for the Canadian Football League. Again, I'm not sure if he's interested. Had never thought of that one. He'd, he'd be a guy that I would definitely consider. Had never thought of that. Uh, Frank just writes in, by the way, on email and says, whew, am I ever glad you guys didn't say Kathleen Wynn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Frank, I'll give you that one. That's absolutely true. Um, the, the name, that uh, the other one that has come up all over the place already today is Pinball Clemens. Yeah. Now, I don't know if Pinball Clemens has the kind of business background that you would want, but the one thing he would have, he would be, when you talk about the opposite, so Scott Mitchell has the business background, yeah. but is that kind of polarizing guy at times. Pinball may or may not have the business background, but nobody dislikes Pinball. He would be the happy, joyful, smiling commissioner at all times that everybody loved whenever he showed up. Yeah, no doubt about that. I mean, everyone, including Ticats fans, love Pinball Clemens. Obviously, they love him more now than, than they did when he was playing. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he would be, a, obviously, and he is, a tremendous ambassador of the Canadian Football League. Um, but a guy I think most fans would probably say, you know what, he doesn't have the business acumen to grow the game. You know, what is he going to bring to the table in that regard? Uh, I'm not sure fans really care about that. I think they just want to see this game get better. Um, so yeah, it would be an interesting choice. I'm not sure I'd go that route. What uh, is the, what is though, Rick, what in in the 30 seconds or so we have, what is, and this is too hard a question to ask you for 30 seconds. So go for a minute. (laughs) What is the role of commissioner though? What is the job of commissioner? Are they simply a public face at the CFL level? Again, we're not talking about multi-billion dollar TV deals or something at the CFL level. Is it a happy, smiling, cheerleading sales pitch face or is it a grinded out businessman who because could not pinball if he were to take this job could he not hire someone under him as the vice commissioner Mm -hmm. to do all the dirty work i think i think it's a bit of it's a jekyll and hyde the fans want that smiling approachable marketable uh you know let's make the fun uh uh, let's make the game fun again person whereas the owners want that business guy who's going to get results so they can line their pockets, obviously. So, yeah, you need a, a bit of a yin and a bit of a yang at the same time. I'll tell you one thing that might Pinball might be able to help. We talked about it with Jeffrey Orge that he couldn't fix Toronto. I would be very interested to see if Pinball was the commissioner, how that might change the perception of the CFL and the attention it gets in the city of Toronto. Yeah, so, you know, if I'm a sports fan in Toronto, I'm not sure if that really registers that much. Other than a, hey, good for the pinball, and, uh, you know, I'm glad he's the commissioner. Except he's out and, and, and he's, he's around. around. He would be visible. He would be very visible. He would be on every show. He'd be on every radio station. He'd be on every TV. He'd be everywhere, whereas you didn't see that with Jeffrey Orridge. Yeah. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree with that. 
Rick Zamperin, always appreciate you coming on here. Thanks for doing this, sir. Anytime. Take care. Uh, I don't know. If you if you have a name out there of someone other than who we said, or maybe if you agree with us, but if you have if you think if you have someone who you think would be a great commissioner for the CFL, if you think it's pinball, great. If you think it's Kathleen Wynn, Frank, that's fine too. But who do you think would be a great commissioner of the CFL? Now, as I said before, by the way, it's radley at 900chml.com if you want to send me that. As I said before, the tricky part of this is I don't really know what the job description is that the league wants, that the fans want, that the owners want. I don't really know what it is you're looking for with this. So I think it's a bit of a blank tableau. I think someone who was interested in this job could come in and say, hey, here's what I plan to do. And here's how I plan to do it. And I don't know if there's a template for the commissioner now, because you've had John Torrey, you've had Mark Cohan, you've had Jeff Giles. They're all business guys. They're different personality-wise. Mark Cohan was very visible and very out there and very accessible and walked around in the crowd and shook hands. And there was there, there are some differences. I don't know what the new guy or woman, or woman. And I think Rick is, I think Rick is, maybe onto something there. It would not be surprising to me in any way, well, maybe a little bit, maybe 2%, if the CFL ended up with a female commissioner. If any league is going to do that, it's going to be the CFL. If any league is going to do that, it's going to be the CFL because the CFL has, to its great credit, led the way in opening doors to people in sports, specifically minorities that didn't have opportunities in other leagues. And that is a something the CFL in Canada can be proud of. It wouldn't shock me if the next step in that was a female commissioner. We will see. I don't expect that it's going to be too, too long before we find out. I think the league is going to try and find someone pretty soon before June when Jeffrey Orridge wraps up, I would expect. That's what I would expect. I don't know if they will, but I would expect that. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.